Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. This is the DOGS program. The Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools are here every Saturday at noon to promote and to defend public education. And we just don't defend public education. We're also prepared, like very few other people in Australia at the moment, to take on the private interest, the private sectarian interest, We do not believe that they should be given public funding. We are just quite simply against all state aid for religious schools because we believe that it contravenes Section 116 of the Constitution. Well, our present Prime Minister can't actually get his sights above private sectarian education to even consider the importance of funding public schools with public money. This is a situation we finally reached in Australia and a reaction is starting in. His very, very small-minded approach has got a reaction. And in our press release 651 this week on our website at www.adogs.info, we have... uh, put our two penneth worth in on his big gaffe of the last week. And this is it. Malcolm Turnbull wishes to only fund private sectarian education. And there was a quote of the week from Ken Boston. Ken Boston, who, by the way, used to be the Director General of the New South Wales Public System, and he started off down here in, of all places, Ballarat, and he didn't have too much to say there about the Roman Catholic system and what it was doing. He was quite friendly with them in his time in Victoria. But Ken Boston has since realised how important it is to properly fund public education. And he said, The money we're using at the moment is not being spent strategically. It's being spent in schools that don't need it, on things that don't matter. Well, dogs agree with what he has said in principle. We might disagree on the schools that actually don't need it and on the things that don't matter, but we find it very interesting that he's prepared to say such a thing. Last week, Mr Turnbull actually said that if state governments were given a share of income tax revenue, please note only a share, the federal government could withdraw from funding public schools, but they would continue to fund non-government or private schools. His thought bubble was pricked by state governments at COAG. Now, the Federation has been under fiscal strain and quite unbalanced since the Second World War when income tax was taken from the states by the federal government. The states are now only raising up to 20% of all the money that they need to spend on education, hospitals and public transport and various other things. But even so, the states last week resisted the temptation. Why? First of all, the state aid to private religious schools fiasco of the last 50 years raised its ugly head. It's becoming blatantly obvious that public school supporters have had more than enough of the coalition's sectarian education policies. But Labor cannot be certain of the state school vote either. 
Secondly, the states were not offered a return of all of the income taxing powers, only a non-specific proportion. And Turnbull had the gall to accuse the states of using federal funding as an ATM. Now, this return of the income taxing powers to the state is not necessarily what the New South Wales Education Minister Adrian Piccoli called the worst idea ever. Because the states are raising less than 20% of their expenditure and they are forced to go cap in hand to the federal government. Back in 1942, in exchange for their income tax paying powers, they only received the payroll tax power, which has proved uh, not nearly as good a thing as income tax. And the federal government, in the meantime, certainly in the last 40 years since the 1970s, has wasted billions and billions of taxpayer dollars on an outmoded ideology of privatisation. With the result, the basic infrastructure has been neglected, and I want to talk about this a little bit later, or left to private enterprise, which only goes where profits are to be made. In education, the private sectarian schools have not only wasted public money on advertising, branding and a capital resources race, they've failed to educate more than a select proportion of Australian children. They've divided the community along sectarian, social and ethnic lines. They've undermined public education and they have caused a decline in the country's educational standards. And the OECD is now saying, what is going on in Australia? Anybody who watched Q&A last week must have been very entertained by the uh, lady from Europe who just said, well, just look at Finland. What are you doing here? You're you're funding private schools. They don't do that in places like Finland. Well, in Finland, they make it illegal to charge fees in private schools. Now, the impasse over school funding arrangements has not been resolved, with the federal and the state leaders agreeing to re-examine school funding in 2017 and explore options for states to receive a fixed share of income tax to fund their services. But the situation in education in Australia at the moment was encapsulated in that statement by Ken Boston, who was a member of the Gonski Committee. He said, the money we're using at the moment is not being spent strategically. It's being spent in schools that don't need it on things that don't matter. And dogs point out that it's being spent in private schools that don't need it and It's being spent, too, on things that don't matter, like advertising and branding and extraordinary resources for these schools. So a half-century of the state aid fiasco later, if he wants to win the next election, Turnbull should be looking at public funding for public schools only. So that's our press release, 651, on our website at www.com adogs.info and you noted that I referred to the expenditure on infrastructure which of course is the expenditure on public schools not just their maintenance but also on new public schools in new housing estates and I recommend a very good read is the quarterly essay uh, issue 61 for 2016 at $22.99 the Balancing Act, Australia Between Recession and Renewal by George Megalaginas, together with um, interesting correspondence from Bernie Fraser, Amanda Walsh and others, Laura Tingle. It's a very interesting read. It points out that for the last 40 or so years, with this privatisation agenda... This belief system, Australia has fallen behind in the levels of infrastructure which it needs. And I'll quote here, if Australia is to catch up, spending should probably return to the levels of the 1960s when it was closer to 10% of GDP 
and it's no use pretending that the private sector can deliver physical infrastructure such as rail lines or roads better than the government. And the dogs would also note they can't deliver private education better than government schools. They never have, they never will, they don't want to, and in fact they undermine the public sector. And Megalaginus goes on to say the market has had two decades to prove otherwise. Well, the market, private schools have had many, many decades since, in fact, 1788 to prove that they can educate our children and they have failed and failed dismally. Uh, Its legacy, the legacy of the private enterprise in the last 20 or 30 years as far as roads and other basic infrastructure is concerned is just congestion. Now, that's not to suggest that there's no role for the private sector and the dogs have never said that either or that in areas such as technology or energy, the government should revive the old discredited policy of picking winners. But the lines at the moment need to be redrawn The existing model, where government provides support for innovation through subsidies but leaves it to the scientists and other experts to come up with the ideas and the private sector to bring them to consumers, might work well sometimes. But government must take the lead on physical infrastructure. Only the government in Australia has an economy-wide perspective and the market that's been left to its own devices in the last 20 or 30 years has only built houses. It hasn't built new schools for the children in the up blocks. And I think it's very interesting, his analysis of what happened to the public uh, structures in Victoria. So I suggest that you go down to your local bookshop or even, I think, newsagent and buy a copy of the quarterly essay because... Uh, we could well be coming into a very, very mean decade in Australian history. And our children and our children's children are at risk of not even having a public school to choose when their parents fall out of work because the jobs are not going to be there unless the government gets its act together with public infrastructure. Now, that's enough for me for the moment, and um, I'll pass over now to Robert. Thank you very much, Jane. You've been listening to The Dogs Programme, Defending Government Schools, here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial and podcast over the WWWs. It's wonderful to have your company again as we defend schools, as we always do every week, giving you the news, views and reviews of what's going on. Um, in, when it comes to education, in a program that you won't get the information from anywhere else. Now, in the last week or so, Malcolm Turnbull, the Prime Minister of Australia, has come out and said what many people have thought the Liberal Party were interested in, and the Liberal Party are interested in making sure that state schools get no federal money. No federal funding for state schools, just state money. And so, therefore, he's thinking about taking the income tax powers, as Jean said, Um, and devolving them to each state to have seven different jurisdictions of income tax across the country rather than a centralised one. Robert, if he's only going to give some of the income tax to them, I can't see how he can devolve all of the powers. It just seems very odd. The whole thought bubble, as he came out with it, sounded very, very half baked. Sorry, the mixed metaphor. No, 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 definitely half baked. Um, It's curious. And in fact, many commentators have said, well, how can you come up with this idea, have not properly thought it out, put it to the premiers and expect it to fly? And of course, one can only imagine he didn't. But as part of that thought bubble, um, the first thing, one of the first things that came out of his mouth was he wasn't interested in funding state schools, wasn't interested in funding government schools, wasn't interested in funding the only school system in Australia that takes all children because those are the values of the state school system. But he didn't give up the hospitals or the medical business either, did he? No, indeed. Very Um, interesting. It is actually very interesting. And the Premier of New South Wales thought it was very interesting and he said, well, hang on, hang on, what's going on here? And Adrian Piccoli up in New South Wales 
um, had a lot of things to say about this when it came to schooling, and we thank him for it. Um, he is, in fact, you know, he's a, he's a minister in a state government, and so he's bound by all the, I would say, corrupt but definitely nefarious relationships that, he, that state governments have with private education providers. He's a national member. He knows about the need for public education for children in the Riverina and down uh, near the Murray, a long, long way from Sydney. They've always had to fight for public schools there. Well, he states quite categorically that this idea of giving full responsibility for funding of public schools to the states that is proposed by the Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull would be, in fact, the biggest mistake in the history of Australian educational policy. I'd argue with him there. I think there were some pretty big mistakes made by Whitlam back in the 70s when state aid first started, but I think it's definitely up there. In an article published by Michael Knott in the Sydney Morning Herald on the 4th of April, um, he went on to say that a war of words has erupted between the New South Wales and Federal Education Minister, um, and this is just months, of course, before a federal election, with Mr McCauley accusing his coalition colleagues, Simon Birmingham, of making frankly, incomprehensible claims about the relationship between school funding and academic results. Senator Birmingham shot back, accusing Mr Coley of perpetuating, well, this is lovely, perpetuating class warfare and defying mathematical logic by calling for extra money from Canberra for New South Wales schools. Now, we'll come back to what Simon Birmingham was talking about because Simon Birmingham is firmly of the view that if you give state schools more money, you don't improve results. And if you give state schools less money, there is no detrimental effect. And he has some numbers to prove it. We'll be talking about these numbers later in the program because these are very interesting numbers. He doesn't say that about private schools, however. Oh, no, private schools just aren't on the table. It's just, it's just perceived by some in Birmingham that you just give money to private schools and you don't ask any questions. But anyway, Mr Turnbull, um, just in the previous weeks gone by, said that the federal government could withdraw from funding public schools while continuing to fund private schools if it gave state governments a share of their income tax revenue. Now, this approach would give the states more autonomy over their own school systems and create clearer lines of responsibility, Mr Turnbull argued. Oh, don't you just love it? Sorry, I have to editorialise here. Don't you just love it when politicians start talking about autonomy? Because the next thing they're going to say is, is freedom. And after they said the word freedom, they're going to say the word choice. And autonomy and freedom of choice are, are the wonderful words that are put into right-wing politicians' mouths in Australia, of course, by the Institute of Public Affairs, because that particular organisation uses those words in a very particular way, which is not... I would state categorically not in the best interests of Australia and certainly not in the best interests of kids. But Mr Bacoli, a National Party member up in New South Wales and the Minister for Education, was not taking Malcolm Turnbull's words at, the, at face value. He's saying basically if you do that, that that would be the biggest mistake in Australian education policy probably forever. He says it would entrench a two-tiered education system. The non-government system, the private school system, would be funded by the federal government with plenty of revenue-raising ability, while the public schools would be fighting for funding against hospitals and against the police. He says New South Wales and himself have been big supporters of David Gonski, recommended in his review, and he wanted sector-blind funding for schools based on need. It's worth again pointing out that here at the Dogs, we do not want sector-blind funding. Sector-blind funding has created the mess we're in in the first place. But he says, having two different funding systems separately is absolutely contrary to what Gonski recommended. The federal government currently contributes around 15% of funding for public schools in New South Wales and indeed around Australia, with the vast bulk coming from state governments. Now, on the weekend, some in Birmingham released an analysis, and this is, this is some in Birmingham's numbers, and, and we'll come back to these numbers, because the federal education minister, Simon Birmingham, says that 46% of public schools with the biggest improvements in their latest literacy and numeracy results had received real funding cuts in 2013 and 2014. Now, where does a federal education minister get those numbers from? He's saying that if you spend less money on state schools, you get better results. 
This is the Federal Education Minister. He's got some numbers and he's tightening. He's having a lovely time with those. But we'll come back to the, the, the Federal Education Minister's numbers because I think it's very important to dig into this, as we often do in the DOGS program, because we take the time. We take the time to look behind what the news is supposed to be. In any case, the Federal Education Minister went on to say that this demonstrates that how you use money is far more important than how much money there is. Mr Piccoli, who wants the Turnbull Government to fund Labor's six-year school funding deal, in full responded to this. He says anyone that argues money doesn't matter in schools is wrong. Now, I don't necessarily agree with Mr Piccoli about everything, but I do like his turn of phrase. He says, look, if money doesn't matter, why would people spend $30,000 a year to send their kid to a school like Sydney Grammar, Malcolm Turnbull's old school, if money doesn't matter? To say money doesn't matter, he says, is not just wrong, it's incomprehensible. Mr Piccoli said extra Gonski funding had allowed low-income public and independent schools to upskill existing teachers and hire new specialists. He said now they can be proactive about helping kids with learning difficulties in a way wealthy schools have been able to for some time. Now, I would tell you, Mr. Mr. Piccoli, that the, st- the stats are out. There are not many kids with learning difficulties proportionally in private school systems in the first place because private school systems, Mr. Piccoli, have been exempt from the anti-discrimination legislation of Australia and of your state for so long that they can just get rid of them. They will sit there and tell you, oh, no, we don't. We have, we have Christian values or Islamic values and we want to educate. They don't. The stats have borne it out. Students with disabilities and learning behaviours and behavioural difficulties are encouraged to leave the private school system, I should say, in such numbers that they're just not statistically there. In fact, if you go to a lot of the high-fee-paying private schools, the presence of students with difficulties for learning, difficulties with behaviour and indeed various various disabilities of all sorts are in some schools statistically insignificant. To say that you, know, that you can wheel out a few people in wheelchairs in a wealthy public private school and say, oh, we, we, we do good things as a matter of charity is not the way the education system in a civilised nation like Australia should be working at all. They have rights. Absolutely not have good rights. Enough. They are citizens of this country and they have the rights to a gold standard education in a well-funded state school. And how do you well-fund state schools? You take all the money you're spending on private schools, wasting in private schools. You take it away from them. Because the fundamental problem with the system it is at the moment, Jane, it's really very simple. For every dollar they spend on a child that needs it in Australia, they've got to spend a dollar. The way this current system, they've got to spend a dollar on a kid that doesn't. And that is a waste. That is what Gonski functionally was trying to address. Even though when Gonski was given his brief, he wasn't allowed to talk about school sectors. He wasn't allowed to report on that. And that's why, of course, Ken Boston, who is a very good public servant, uh, has his own way of saying the money we're using at the moment is not being spent strategically. It's being spent in schools that don't need it on things that don't matter. I think that was very well put. He may disagree with us on the schools that should uh, not have funding but um, and on the things that don't matter. But um, I think that at least he was trying to say something that does matter. Well, yes, he, he was trying. I mean, he also said things like in response to this whole idea that he wanted seamless funding arrangements for schools across sectors. Now, we don't agree with that, but he says the new proposals would actually divide them sharply into non-government schools and government schools, and the states are simply not able to provide a level playing field across sectors that the Gonski Review, which he was part of, envisaged in the first place. If you functionally, nominally, metaphorically and financially separate them out into state schools get state money, private schools get federal money, then you, then the whole, you split the whole thing out and talking about needs policies and sector-blind stuff, even that goes out the window. I mean, there's no veil anymore. There's no veil to hide behind if look, this is what the federal government look, wants Robert, to do. Robert, right back in 1911, Mannix worked out where the power and the money was and it was in the federal government and he laid out a plan then for the DLP to get into the middle rank of politics and to blackmail the Australian public politically and to get into the federal treasury where the big money was for the private schools. That is where the money is in Canberra. 
it is not in Spring Street anymore, and it's quite simple. Yes. Well, I promised dear listeners that I would get back to these numbers that Simon Birmingham has been touting, putting out there, saying that if you spend more money on kids in state schools, you don't get better results. If you spend less money on kids in state schools, you don't get worse results. Note that Simon Birmingham is not talking about private schools because they have to have the federal money. If they don't, of course, there will be political consequences the bishops and the ACL will start jumping up and down, probably talking about sectarianism. In a very interesting article, Lenore Taylor, um, the political editor of The Guardian, has actually gone around and spoken to people who know about these numbers. Now, there's been a number of education experts that have accused the Turnbull government of using incredibly flimsy evidence to support the claims that more school funding does not deliver better student results and have demanded the release of the data to properly test this crucial assertion. Now, it's worth pointing out here that, as Lenore Taylor, in her article on the 7th of April in The Guardian, points out that Simon Birmingham will give us the headline results, but he will not give us the data from which he derived them. No, we're not allowed to find out how he got these numbers. We're just supposed to believe him. Now, school funding is emerging actually now, and we're not at all surprised here at the Dogs, as a central election battleground. Now, Labor, in the upcoming federal election, is pledging $4.5 billion to pay for extra money promised for the final two years of the Gonski Education Plan. And that's the money that was set aside from 2018 onwards and writing to every public school attacking the government policy. That's what Labor's doing. Labor has finally woken up that education is a battleground. It is such a great pity, and it is a terrible pity, going back to Gellard's days, that the whole process of privatising the TAFE sector, privatising education, setting up private provision of education in Australia was in fact Labor government policy. And the Labor government is substantially responsible for where we are at the moment. But it seems as though they're turning around and they want to go the Gonski. Now the Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, has declined to offer any extra money and has argued that more funding has not delivered improved educational outcomes and that teacher quality is far more important. And as I mentioned before, just recently some in Birmingham has released an, and I quote, analysis of 375 schools that have improved their NAPLAN results, which the minister said showed some of these schools had also seen their funding decline and therefore there was no correlation between funding increases and school result increases. Now, the Education Minister at Federally, Mr Birmingham, reportedly said the analysis of the results from these schools, which represented about 4% of all schools, proved that the Gonski reforms had been a failure. Now, he says, but, yeah, but let's get into the details. Education experts, which have been contacted by the North Taylor, described the analysis as incredibly flimsy and ridiculously simplistic and call for the public release of the underlying data to test the impact of consistent extra funding of disadvantaged schools, which was in fact the key point of the Gonski plan for needs-based funding to stop struggling schools struggling and students who were falling behind falling even further. Now, according to the government analysis, 46% of public schools that showed the biggest improvement in literacy and numeracy, that's reading, writing and arithmetic, had also received funding cuts over the same time. I thought they said that, that, that they were giving more and more money to education. How well, come they got cuts? Well, you see, this is all rather strange, isn't it? <laughs> but the School Education Program Director for the Grattan Institute, Peter Goss, said, and I quote, the analysis the Minister has released is incredibly flimsy given the importance of the underlying question. Hmm. And describing the link between students' performance and funding as vexed and complex... So he's saying the devil's in the detail. Let's have a look at the detail. And the, and the education minister is saying, no, you can't. Mm. Mr Goss goes on to say that looking at the small number of schools, that's about 4%, and changes to funding and changes to results across one year doesn't really tell us anything without a lot more information. He says there is such an important claim based on, you know, it is an important claim mm. that Birmingham's making, and national policy should really be based on solid evidence. 
At the minimum, that means analysis has to be publicly tested and verified, something the education minister is not willing to do. I think I think here we should be looking at the Institute of Public Affairs, Robert, I and I'll be doing that a bit later. I think you will. Now, Goss um, at the Grattan Institute called on the government to release three to five years of funding and NAPLAN data for the schools that have been measured because it took that long for improvements in teaching practice to show up. Now, I can just sense. testify to this. Yeah. If you want to have an implementation in a school and you say, I want to make sure that all the results and everything's in after 12 months, you're kidding yourself. Mm. I mean, you can't change the school in, well, in, what, in a year. What field can get results that overnight? <laughs> you know? Ha- uh, futures traders? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. you know in, in addition, Jim McMorrow, an, an honorary associate professor of education at the University of Sydney, said, and I quote, it's just not possible to judge the integrity or accuracy of the minister's claim without his making available publicly a full set of data underpinning the analysis. And that simplistic analyses and the misuse of statistics, whether or not by design, said McMorrow, (laughs) sitting on the fence, can do no real damage or can do actually real damage to the most needy students. McMorris said the minister's conclusion ignored the possibility that NAPLAN improvements at the school were due to a cumulative effect of past investment, e.g. a school may have benefited from a fixed-term program such as the former government's national school partnerships, which were terminated before the time period that the minister's looking at. Any negative effects of the cessation of funding would not be immediately apparent. Because, as I said, it takes a while to improve a school. But it actually takes a while for a school to fall into a hole as well. Schools don't move quickly. Kids don't move quickly. Cultures don't move quickly. Mm. He said the analysis also provided no information about the overall level of funding, but only about the change in funding from year to year. He says the minister's argument focuses on funding changes, increases or cuts, without any reference to the level of funding. The more fundamental question is whether or not the schools in question have been operating at or near the standards for resource appropriate according to the Gonski model for the students it enrols. For example, if a school is operating well above the Gonski standard, has improved NAPLAN scores despite a cut in its per student resources, it's in a quite different position from a school that has funding increase but still no op- but is still operating well below. It depends on how you cherry pick your schools. As a former principal and fellow of the Centre for Policy Development, Chris Bonner said, he didn't think a clear pattern of anything can be determined in one year. Quite right. Under the circumstances, he said, I would be shocked if there was a clear correlation. My guess is that these 129 schools are with more advantaged students, and these are schools which would be expected to lose a bit of money under needs-based funding. All the experts said additional money made the most difference in disadvantaged schools, where they said it could work wonders, which was also the focus of the Gonski, all those years ago, what Gonski was talking about in the first place. I don't think that Turnbull or Birmingham actually have ever visited or know anything about disadvantaged children or disadvantaged schools. They've lived, they've lived in these thought bubbles all their lives. Indeed. Anyway, Bonner goes on to say, it's true that just spending more money doesn't improve results, but there is much evidence when money is spent well to improve teacher practice in struggling schools, it can make a huge difference. And I can tell you right now that if you give an extra $6 million a year to Scots College from government coffers and they don't need it, it's not going to improve anything. I would actually agree with Simon Birmingham on that. I would actually agree that if you give money to private schools... (laughs) It's actually not going to improve the results, probably for the students in that school, and definitely for the student population of Australia. So we'll continue more with this analysis, but we'll do so after a little music.
Creative People Powered Radio exhibition is on now. Get along to Gertrude Contemporary Gallery and enjoy this exciting collaboration. The exhibition features recordings, technological hardware, photos, ephemera and newly commissioned artworks by local artists which frame and interpret the station's history of radical broadcasting. A series of live broadcasts are happening every Friday in April, direct from the exhibition space, talking sovereignty, troublemaking and music. Come and explore the politics of broadcasting, the experience of community and the station's radical history with Gertrude Contemporary Gallery and Art Space. 200 Gertrude Street, Fitzroy, open Tuesdays to Saturdays from 11am. Exhibition finishes April 23rd. For more information, visit 3cr.org.au. Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial and podcast over the www.3cr.org. at 3cr.org. It's great to have your company. Um, we're just listening to a bit of Green Sleeves. A bit of Green Sleeves. A lovely little song from an album, a heart song it was, um, sung by Jenny Kelso um, from South Australia and New South Wales and the Australian Opera playing a harp all by herself. But yes, back to serious business. Away from the sleeves that are green to the sleeves that are bloody and black because the federal government is getting stuck into state education. All hands to the pump. I just cannot. I just, it happens again and again and again. I cannot imagine why Simon Birmingham would be saying the things that he's saying. I mean, various people. I can. Well, no, very, no. I have an explanation. But if you think about it, Jane, because I, I know you have an explanation, but if you think about what Simon Birmingham is doing, I mean, there's only a couple of reasons. One, um, if he wants to take money away from state education in Australia, considering the PISA results that are going to come out from Australia late next year, which will be completely disastrous, if he wants to take money away from the state education system and he thinks that will improve the state education system, he's got to be stupid. He's got to have rocks in his head. He's got to be thinking about ridiculously disastrous things from Australia, as Mr Piccoli and Mr Bonner quite simply point out. Because either he's stupid or he's mendacious. Either he's stupid or he just really wants to destroy the state education system. He resents it. He doesn't want it to be there. He doesn't want taxpayers' money going around educating other people's children, especially if the other people's children don't come from the suburb he comes from. And if you can't afford an education for your children, then you don't deserve one. It's a strange ideology. It goes back to the 18th century. I'm not quite sure Mr Birmingham quite fits into that character, but I think if you dig and push and prod... You might get to that result in the end. But, Jean, you have a, a theory which I'm pretty sure I'm going to agree with because it relates to a lovely little organisation we've spoken about here which is behind the government called the Institute of Public Affairs. I have an article which was sent to me by John Foster and I'm very grateful for it, John, if you're listening. And it's by Dr Greg Bailey, uh, called the Liberal Party and the Institute of Public Affairs. Who is whose? This Institute of Public Affairs is no longer a pressure group operating on the sidelines. It's moved out of the dim shadows into the political spotlight intent on seizing control of the levers of power in Canberra. Now, how has it done this? Well, I think that you have in the Liberal Party not people who are liberals, they might be called neoliberals. Um, you have, in fact, people who have come from a conservative religious ideological system in which they weren't allowed to ask certain questions uh, into an economic system in which they're doing the same kind of thing. Now, this Institute of Public Affairs, according to Mr Bailey, serves good beer at its functions, but... Um, it has been pushing the right-wing neoliberal agendas. But it's only been in the last decade and really during the last period of the Liberal government since October 2013 that it's emerged from the dim shadows into the brightness of political life. It functioned mainly as a pressure group that would provide some kind of intellectual substance to the economic and lobbying interests of the large mining companies and banks and they provided most of its financial support in those days. But already 
It has honed its lobbying skills with high success when Jeff Kennett privatised the electricity industry in Victoria in 1993. But now, in 2016, whilst it continues to make many submissions to parliamentary inquiries, its influence on the political functioning of the country has actually become a lot more direct. There are two main reasons for their success. Firstly, the IPA has great skill in insinuating itself into the media at all levels. In their 2015 annual report, they boasted of 81 mentions in federal parliament, 762 appearances in the print media, 411 appearances on radio and 184 appearances on TV. So they're pretty good on the statistics when it suits them. Only the Grattan Institute, the Sydney Institute, the Australia Institute and the Lowy Institute could have comparable numbers. Now, the IPA's executive director is a man called John Roscombe, who's been around for a long, long time, and Ray Nielsen was always very interested to find out what happened to him. And he appears now almost every Wednesday at 10am on the John Fain program. So the ABC is quite happy to play along with these people. And Chris Berg is a regular columnist for the Sunday Age, And the IPA is not unexpectedly well, very well represented in the Murdoch press. Others of of the IPA appear regularly on the drum and Q&A, and occasional media appearances might be understandable. But their continuing presence, especially on the ABC, suggests that they have mainstreamed themselves. If the ABC had any real balance, and they're always being accused of being leftist, then any show with an IPA representative would include a representative from the Socialist Workers' Party. And I don't think we've ever seen that happen. Now, we also have the 75-item manifesto, which was published in March 2013. And you might remember that the dogs told you about this because it provided a very radical platform of very detailed proposals for wholesale privatisation in Australia, comparable to what is now happening in the United Kingdom and in the United States. So when our Prime Minister in the last week says that he's only going to fund private schools from Canberra and the states with minimal funds can deal with the state schools. You can actually trace it back, I believe, to the IPA and their wholesale privatisation policies. If their policies had been fully implemented and they're still there, it would have laid the foundation for an Australia of the likes that we've never seen before towards a more general acceptance by a relatively large audience of informed listeners on the ABC, readers of the age and a more popular audience on Radio 3AW. When they are in the media, their extreme views are usually toned down a little to the extent that one could mistakenly consider the IPA a group of modest free marketeers. But it's very interesting that the second reason why they have been very influential is that the very strong historical connection of the IPA with the Liberal Party, both in and out of government. Whereas most other think tanks operate by canvassing ideas and putting in submissions to parliamentary inquiries, the IPA have their own members in Parliament itself. And most of their board members are either members of or closely associated with the Liberal Party. This is very interesting, and I'd also like to know their connections with particular religious groups. What this means is that there's a direct interaction between both groups with the IPA arguably developing policy and the Liberal government implementing it. In the Senate at the moment, Family First member Bob Day is a member of the IPA, and so is David Leonhelm of the Liberal Democrats. So we've got two IPA people in the Senate. No other, uh, there are also members who hold seats in different state parliaments and no other think tank has this level of direct representation in parliament and nor should they. 
Only in the last few weeks, two prominent members of the IPA have been placed into positions where they'll be members of Parliament. James Patterson, who was the former Deputy Executive Director of the APA, has been elevated to fill a casual Senate vacancy. And Tim Wilson, who's the former Human Rights Commissioner and Policy Director of the IPA, has won pre-election for the, sorry, pre-selection for the safe Victorian Liberal seat of Goldstein. Both of these men, Patterson and Wilson, are young and they'll likely be in Parliament for a long time, thus providing extra pressure long-term from the IPA. State income tax plan is a disaster of Turnbull's own making, but who leaked it? One just wonders about this. On his elevation to the Senate, Patterson emailed a letter to all IPA members in which he said, now this is a man who, if he's... Um, elected to Parliament should be representing his constituents. But this is what he said. I want you to know that I'm going to the Senate to fight for exactly the same things I have in my time at the IPA. I know if I ever fail to do so that IPA members will be the first to let me know where I have gone wrong. (laughs) Well, one could mistakenly think that he'd be representing his state of Victoria, not the IPA. But a second telling example concerns the response to the refusal in August 2014 to repeal the race-hate laws. John Roscombe said that the IPA had been contacted by many IPA members who are also Liberal Party members who've said that they will resign their membership from the Liberal Party over the broken promise from the government. Now, Tony Abbott phoned Andrew Bolt and John Roscombe to inform them of the government's decision that they wouldn't repeal. I think it was Section 18, wasn't it? 18C. Yeah, 18C. And the Liberal Party members apparently go to the IPA before they protest to their own MPs. So the IPA experts exerts much more influence on the present government than any other think tank or pressure group unless, of course, it was the Roman Catholic Church, has ever done. Their interests do coincide with those of the large business and consultancy groups, yet their concerns are more pragmatic and short-term, whereas those of the IPA are long-term and they're strongly ideological. Now, you may say, what has this got to do with education? I'm suggesting, leaders, that it Uh, listeners that it's actually got a lot to do with public education because we are here dealing with a very, very influential think tank which is feeling so confident that in the current political climate they can change the whole shape of Australia. They can force us, all all of our public instrumentalities, into the private marketplace And our children's future can be the plaything for global profiteers who don't pay any tax anyway, as we found out in the last week from the Massad Conseca leakage. So we live in very interesting times and we need to inform ourselves and know exactly what we're up against when we fight for public education. This is, in fact, a battle of ideologies. The state, if it is a democratic state, has responsibilities for the education of all of its citizens. They do not have responsibility to fulfil the wishes of the IPA and the people who want to make money out of insecure parents. So... uh, I thought that that was a very interesting article indeed. Thank you very much, Jane. You're listening to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. Yes, here at the Dogs, we talk about education policy and we talk about the foundation, the foundational elements that surround it. And often we talk about separation of religion from the state because that is, in fact, underneath, it's bubbling underneath the, the debates, discussions and, and the problems of actual public education provision in Australia. But Jean's right to point out that 
the notion of privatising a public good at all costs, which is in fact the raison d'etre, that concept of freedom and choice, which is promulgated by people like the IPA. In fact, they're not the only ones, but they are in fact, as Jean quite rightly points out, very influential. And she, and she did mention, in fact, on the 70th birthday of the IPA, down at the National Gallery of Victoria, they had a dinner. And at that dinner, they released a series of a wish list of policies. A wish list of policies. And there was about 60 or 70 of them. Now, that was about four years ago. 2013. 2013. 2013. At that time, that was a wish list. Since the Coalition Federal Government's been in power, one third of those goals, those aspirations, about one third of those have been ticked off. There's a few things that haven't been ticked off. They haven't quite destroyed the ABC. They haven't quite defunded the state school system yet. But those were wishes. And at that dinner, who was there? Yeah. Rupert Murdoch gave the keynote speech. Yeah. Tim Wilson was there, of course, as a member. Um, Gina Reithart turned up. And, of course, at the high table, guest of honour, was Cardinal George Pell. These connections aren't, so, these connections aren't conspiratorial. They're, they're there for all to see. But underlying even that and what these policies that the IPA has promulgated for now a couple of decades is that, is that we now have functionally where the gen- this generation of Australians will actually, functionally, it's too late now, they will be less well-educated than the generation that came before them. And, you know, various generations, you talk about the baby boomers and Gen X and you talk about Gen Ys and the millennials and all that sort of thing. But it's very interesting, and I think it, again, gets to the foundational ideas around discussing public education because now it is the season for intergenerational warfare. I mean, there's sniping going on. I hear it, actually, about entitled millennials moaning about baby boomers purchasing their third properties and the generation Y are spoiled and cocky while boomers, of course, are selfish and willfully ignorant. It's generational warfare. But it's not actually generational warfare. It's class warfare. Now, though this generational marker should not be discounted as meaningless, most of the time we're actually talking about class. There's moaning about millennials who waltz into offices expecting to be the boss within six months. This is not about millennials, actually. This is actually about rich kids. Someone raised by teachers in a country town and they're a millennial does not walk into a city job to tell people what to do. It just doesn't work that way. Now, the rise of internships in Australia, internships, used to be an American thing, is actually unethical and exploitative, no matter what type of family you come from. But the ones who are able to work for months at a time, young people, months at a time for no pay, to secure a real job are the people with financial backing from their families, even if it's just a rent-free house room, a room in a house where you don't have to pay the bills for food. It is an undeniable fact, no matter which way you look at it, that it was easier to get into the property market 30 years ago than it is today. But it is rich people who own multiple properties today, and it's their offspring who will reap the benefits of that. There are large swathes of young people who are now who are not locked out of the property market at all, but will inherit the spoils of their elders who've managed onto the hoard. The system has always been stacked in the favour of the rich, and it's only becoming now much more so. Thirty years ago, it was possible to save a deposit for a property within a few years without any parental help. Now that whole idea is completely laughable. The hows of the millennials. House prices are now up from nine times the average income is legitimate, but there are people who moan that they will never be able to afford a house on their own, which, while true, discounts the fact that they have parents who will guarantee their loan or even provide the deposit. Oh, look, give it a few months, Robert. There's a housing bubble. Anybody who knows anything about economics must understand that it can't... It just can't go on the way it is. Well... Uh, There's just... Well, you know and I know that there's far too many... Far too many... um, apartments in the city of Melbourne. Just give it a few months. There's a reason why we're going to an early election. A very, very good Tax, 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 tax. Let's get back to tax. And, Jean, this this is something you talk about a lot um, when it comes to educational issues because they're markers. Analysis of the latest tax figures show the top 1% of Australians, earners, amassed 9% of the Australian income total in Australia in 2013. 
And this is the highest proportion. This is the highest proportion since the 1950s. In the US, underemployment has risen from 2.5 to 4.3% over 10 years, while in the UK it's up from 1.2 to about 8% over about 10 years. In Australia, in the 70s, underemployment was about 2%, and now it's 8.5%. The one good thing in all of this, this sounds all very, very, very worrying, but the one good thing about all of this is that for the last century, people in public schools have actually been taught to think and they'll be able to think their way around the lies that are being told us by the people in power. And the public school parents at the moment are starting to wake up Oh, I think, I think they've woken to have up, Jane. I think they've woken up, Jane. I think the whole idea is if you privatise something and it makes it better. It's been 20 years. Has it worked with roads? No. Has it worked with hospitals? No. Has it worked with schools? No. Has it worked with tapes? No. Has it worked with anything? No. The privatisation of public provision is now something that if a politician starts woofling on about it, they have to use a euphemism because the public's not going to wear it if they come out and say it. The IPA has to use these strange euphemistic terms about freedom of choice because people do not believe, will not believe, because there is no evidence that the private provision of a public good like education is good for anybody, apart from those who specifically benefit. And who are those? Yes, it is class warfare. Those are people who can afford the choice. Those are people who can pay for the freedom. Because if you can't pay, you don't have choice. If you can't pay, you don't have freedom. And there's a word for a society where if you can't pay, you can't have freedom. There's a word for it. It's called uncivilised. It's called regressive. In fact, it's not a country at all. It's just a bunch of people who are trying to eat each other to get to the nice place in the school or the nice place in the hospital. And that's not what Australia was, but that is what it's becoming. But we've been listening to the Dogs Program. getting quite grumpy, actually, here on the Dogs Program. But don't worry, the fight goes on. And as as Trevor Cobalt say, the struggle is long, but hope is longer, and we won't stop. You've been listening to the Dogs Program here on 855 on the AM dial, 3CR and podcast. And if you're interested in what we have to say, of course, you can investigate us, complain to us, have a go, or indeed agree with us um, at our website, www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. But until next week, it's bye for now. I dreamed 
sought you here last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he.